0: This is Christian Knutson and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: Republican legislative leaders are filing for a judge to dismiss a lawsuit challenging the legality of Wisconsin's 1849 abortion ban. The lawsuit, brought by Governor Tony Evers and Attorney General call argues the state's 1849 statute banning abortion is superseded by differing sets of abortion restrictions passed by republicans in the last few decades republican legislators have responded claiming that evers and call do not have standing to bring suit and that the new laws are compatible with the 19th century ban reported by the capitol times the lawsuit could head to the wisconsin supreme court where
0: conservatives currently hold a four to three majority Governor Evers proposed a major tax cut today. This cut would reduce taxes by a projected $600 million per year, mostly by cutting income taxes on individuals making less than $100,000 a year and families making less than $150,000 a year. The proposal would also cap co-pays for insulin at $35 and work to lower gas prices. Evers cited the strong fiscal position of the state as a reason for this tax proposal, reported the Associated Press. The state of Wisconsin's budget surplus for 2023 is a projected $3.8 billion. Republican lawmakers have indicated that they will reject this tax cut proposal, accusing Evers of trying to drum up votes in the run-up to the November election and saying these cuts favor low-income earners. The tax cuts are similar to a proposal the governor submitted five months ago that were also rejected by the Republican-controlled state legislature.
1: One month after its initial launch, Wisconsin's Suicide and Crisis Hotline has received over 6,000 calls, according to the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. The new hotline, which opened in July, was created through the new National National Suicide Hotline Improvement Act and is managed by Family Services of Northeast Wisconsin, a nonprofit organization. The rapid onset of calls has meant that only about two-thirds of those calls can be answered by the call center. The rest had to be forwarded to a backup center, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The call center is planning on adding more personnel to make sure that it can handle the large volume of calls.
0: A California-based developer is looking to build a four-story mixed-use apartment complex on Verona Road in Madison's southwest side. The proposed development would result in the demolition of Fast Forward Skate Center, Madison's only roller rink, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Currently, Fast Forward is hoping to find another site for a roller rink, but has not found a suitable replacement facility. The new development would also include educational and training space for the Latino Academy, a local nonprofit, and would include a mix of market rate and affordable housing. The proposed development will head to the city's plan commission for approval.
1: The Wisconsin Department of Health Services is hosting a virtual town hall tonight to address concerns about monkeypox in the state, reported WKOWTV. Wisconsinites with questions or concerns are invited to watch the town hall, which will run from 7 to 8 o'clock tonight. The town hall can be viewed at dhs.wisconsin.gov.
0: Ty, a 14-year-old red panda at the Henry Vilas Zoo, has been diagnosed with cancer, reports NBC15. Red pandas are an endangered species with less than 2,500 estimated to be living in the wild. Ty is currently undergoing chemotherapy and will be recovering off of display.
1: Wisconsin took home multiple gold medals in one of the nation's most prestigious hair-based competitions, the USA Mullet Championships. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that 8-year-old Emmett Mullet Boy Bailey of Mononyme and 17-year-old Caden Kershaw of Wausau both won gold in their respective age groups. The competition worked to donate portions of every entry fee to Maggie's Wigs for Kids Wellness Center in Michigan, a nonprofit organization that provides free wigs to children who lose their hair due to cancer, burns, or other disorders congratulations to them both and now on to today's
0: top stories a madison board has been in the hiring process for the city's first independent police monitor for about two years now but has encountered hiccups along the way now four finalists have been announced and one will be selected in coming weeks WORT producer Nate Wegehout breaks down what sets these four candidates apart.
2: The Madison Police Civilian Oversight Board announced the final four candidates for the city's first independent police monitor last Thursday. And they're moving at a rapid pace to hire someone, leaving the public less than a week to weigh their options for the new position. The position was created about two years ago. The person who fills the position will carry some unique responsibilities and powers, like investigating complaints against police and subpoenaing records. The independent monitor will also recommend policy changes and engage with the community. The Monitor could make anywhere from $104,000 to $141,000 a year, according to the position description. That upper figure is nearly as much as the state attorney general's salary. After a previously drawn-out and botched attempt to hire a final candidate, the Civilian Oversight Board had to restart the hiring process earlier this summer. The job posting for the independent monitor was posted on June 1st, with a six-week window for people to apply. And while the first hiring round for the position last year took about 20 weeks for the city to offer the position to one of the candidates, this time the city is hoping to do that in just 11 weeks. And now it's leaving only five days for the public to give their thoughts on the candidates. Last Thursday, the Oversight Board held a candidate form introducing the four candidates to the Madison community. With a final hiring decision expected to come this Thursday, that left only one week for the public to examine the candidates for independent monitor. So, here are the candidates. Robert Copley, Rodney Saunders Jr., John Tate II, and Joel Winnig. Robert Copley is a government transparency attorney and has worked with the Milwaukee Police Department to ensure the department fulfilled open records requests and stayed open to the public.
3: I believe that policing itself is an inherently necessary ingredient to any functioning society. However, it is the most immediately impactful and recognizable form of state power uh, and thus must be heavily scrutinized, monitored and be uh, guided by the community that it itself is supposed to be serving. Any law itself is a social construct or a social contract, but it is the enforcement of that law itself that draws the difference between social harmony and oppression.
2: Rodney Saunders Jr. works with the Wisconsin Department of Transportation to help bring diversity to the DOT. He has also worked with unhoused folks here in Dane County.
4: In both of those roles, with regard to law enforcement, I saw the gap between mental health health services and an over reliance on policing which I believe both increases the difficulty for the vulnerable population, the providers that work with those populations, and it overburdens law enforcement. So I've seen stark gaps in every way, from infant mortality rates, education, incarceration, income, and more between majority groups and people of color.
2: John Tate II calls himself a social worker and is the Racine City Council president and was chair of the State Parole Commission.
0: And in those roles, my objective has always been to identify the inequity and identify the systems and identify how we can shift those systems to better serve the populations that are within them. As I'm taking the perspective of understanding people in their environment, the macro and the micro of everything we experience, whether that's the person and how they're operating within the system.
2: Joel Winnig is a Madison native and attorney who had previously ran for state Supreme Court in 2011. At the time, Winnig said that he ran for the seat because he disagreed with sitting Justice Michael Gableman, calling his 2008 re-election campaign, quote, the most despicable thing I've ever seen in the legal profession, end quote.
3: My goal is to help as many people as possible and to be as affordable as possible. I did that with significant success for over 40 years. I represented individuals who almost always had fewer resources than the other side of their case.
2: Winnig says that as someone who has witnessed the Madison Police Department for over 50 years, he thinks Madison has one of the best police departments in the country.
3: I think there's great potential to work with the police department to continue that progressive policing and to uh, improve uh, where improvement is needed.
2: Rodney Saunders Jr., however, says that, as a black man living in Madison, he sees pretty big disparities within the police department.
4: Madison Police Department has lower arrests than the national average. However, unfortunately, black folks in particular are arrested at a rate twice as high as the national average and 11 times more than their white and Hispanic counterparts.
2: While Winnig was the only candidate who had read the report written by the Madison Police Policy and Procedure Committee, a report containing 177 recommendations to the department, John Tate II says that many of those recommendations are universal.
3: Everybody
0: can often identify with one instance that we see somewhere else that might not even be close to Wisconsin because that is still ultimately the culture and training and practice of policing that it could happen here.
2: Robert Copley says that his experience with the Milwaukee Police Department has given him special insight into how to make the Madison Police Department more transparent.
3: And one of the main challenges that uh, I've encountered at my current job was the uh, handling of uh, body worn camera footage, uh, specifically as how that relates towards police transparency and handling that out in uh, public record requests to both the public as well as to the media itself.
2: The survey to give your thoughts on the candidates closes at midnight tonight, and that survey is available on the City of Madison's website. The final pick for the position will be announced at the Oversight Board's meeting this Thursday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nat Wuggie Hout.
1: Looking ahead at the rest of the week, there are a few possibilities for thunderstorms here in Madison. With more about what to expect, here's WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis.
5: The days are getting shorter. And the sun is now not rising until 6 12 a.m. without sunlight temperatures are much cooler in the morning now giving us an introduction to the fall season although temperatures aren't as warm in the early mornings they're still heating up pretty quick and the temperatures over the next week are fluctuating between the mid-70s to the mid-80s temperatures are currently sitting at 79 degrees with winds coming from the southwest at a low five miles per hour Humidity is sitting at right around 50%, but will increase into the overnight hours. Over the next few days, high pressure will be in control. Lake Mendota's water temperature is sitting at 72 degrees, dropping from what we have been previously seeing last month. The UV index tomorrow is looking to possibly reach the high category here in Madison. The index will be remaining in the high category for the rest of the week as of now, so be sure to prepare your skin. Today's ragweed pollen reached the moderate category, and today's grass and tree pollen is sitting in the low categories. Over the next few days, these categories should drop or not be present at all. Wednesday into Thursday seems to look a bit more striking than we have been seeing earlier this week. We could be seeing a round of thunderstorms as it has been signaled and indicated in the radar, and with a mix of unstable air, the showers could linger into Thursday morning and early into the afternoon. But dry and cool air is looking to come in Thursday night. There's a possibility for showers into the weekend moving from the west, but there's a much lower chance than anticipated, and we will likely not be seeing these storms. Here in Madison with your WORT weather report, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis.
0: Cow manure can be turned into renewable energy using anaerobic digesters. Tonight's edition of Climate Connections explains what these systems can do. I'm Dr. Anthony Liesewitz, and this is Climate Connections.
6: As cow manure decomposes, it releases methane, a powerful climate-warming gas. But if the manure breaks down in a system called an anaerobic digester, the gas is captured and can be used to generate renewable energy. For many farmers, though, investing in a digester seems out of reach. It's been said
1: that farms need to have about 500 cows or more to make a digester project cost-effective in the United States. The average dairy farm size in Pennsylvania is 85 cows.
6: So Matt Steinman of Dickinson's College Farm in central Pennsylvania is exploring how anaerobic digestion can be cost-effective at a smaller scale. Smaller, more affordable digesters are used in Europe. With the support of an EPA grant, Steinman's team is importing a digester that will process manure from about 150 cows, along with up to two tons of food waste a day. And they're analyzing how such an investment might work financially. For example, excess electricity produced by the system can be sold to the grid and farmers could process food and animal waste from other businesses for a fee. We're trying to
1: kind of field test this technology here in the States and see how it pencils out.
6: They plan to share what they learn so more farms can cut their methane emissions and create clean energy. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
0: It's now 621 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Today marks two years since the police shooting of Jacob Blake, which left the Kenosha man paralyzed from the waist down. The shooting thrust the southeastern Wisconsin city into the national conversation about police brutality as protests hit the city for days afterwards. WORT reporter Helena White was in Kenosha during one of the protests. We share her story from two years ago.
7: The Blake family had called for a peaceful protest Saturday, and they were rewarded with a powerful demonstration of community support. Because the Kenosha County Sheriff had closed all the highway exits to Kenosha, I had to drive south from Racine to enter the town. But once there, it was easy to find a large crowd, made up of black, white, and Latinx people, Black Muslims, Black Panthers, members of the Sikh faith, mothers pushing kids in strollers, fathers holding babies, assembled on a blocked-off street. I spoke to Jackie, who described the Kenosha police. They always use police brutality. They don't try to come and talk to you and find out what's going on. They're
8: very offensive, as if they fear us. Fear us for what? But it's time for a change and stop sweeping it under the rug and acting like you don't know what's going on. You know exactly what's going on in this city. You caused these problems and you continue to act like you don't see it. Everybody
7: in the world saw that video live. Everybody saw what happened on that Sunday morning. This needs to stop and it needs to stop now the Blake family led the march several blocks to the Kenosha County Courthouse while the crowd chanted. In the nearby park, over 1,200 people assembled in front of a stage guarded by black Muslims and listened to an impassioned array of speakers who included Jacob Blake's sister, the teacher Weidman. Weidman had a message for the Kenosha police. I
8: want to the special- And I want to thank you again for recharging my melody. And since we're doing things our way today, I'm an artist, so I'm going to share some of my work with y'all. And I wrote this piece just for today. I am the keeper. I will not sleep, and I don't need to eat. My belly is full with my ancestors' pain. Yes, sir! I am the keeper. Now watch me rain. Hear my roar. I am the keeper. I don't scare easily. I'm pulling up to your door.
7: Congresswoman Gwendolyn Moore promoted the Justice in Policing Act, which would outlaw racial profiling, chokeholds, and no-knock warrants.
2: And I'm the mother of two black men. And I'm
8: Every time they walk out the door, walking while
9: black, talking while black,
8: thinking while black, all black, black, all black. it's time for us to pass that Justice and Policing
9: Act, which I look up to offer. office
4: in
7: Washington, D.C. The state's first black lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, also spoke.
3: But unfortunately, we still deal with some of the same challenges that our people were dealing with decades ago. But we're here today to say no. And when I look at this crowd, I see different races, different genders, different sexual orientation, different religions, people who are standing up all across this state, all across this country, demanding the justice that we deserve. And justice is a bare minimum. Justice should be guaranteed to everybody in this country.
7: There was an emotional message from Jacob's father, Jacob Blake Sr.
2: My son, the other day when I was in the hospital, Give me a second. Take your time. He he grabbed my hand. He stole my hand. And he said, Daddy, Daddy, I love you. You know I love you. I said, man, listen. I love you more than anything in the world. Then
4: my baby said, Daddy, why did they shoot me? So many times, I said, "Baby,
2: they weren't supposed to shoot you at all." I know, I know. There's a lot of parents out here in this crowd. You cannot imagine what it feels like
3: to look at your baby paralyzed from the waist down, shackled, shackled. Where
2: was my son going? They already put him in the bed.
3: What was the shackle for? We suffered and still suffer because there's two justice systems. There's one for that white boy that walked down the street and murdered those two people and blew that other man's arm off.
7: On the Justice for Jacob Blake protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. For WORT Local News, this is Helena White. Justice.
1: The time right now is 6.32, and you're listening to the local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Electric cars are quickly becoming more common on the streets, but many people don't have much experience with this new technology. Helena White brings us this closer look at the pros and cons of electric cars.
7: According to the Environmental Protection Agency... Over a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation, and the vast majority of that is from cars and trucks. While the solution to the climate crisis will most likely be a move away from single-occupant vehicles and towards extensive carbon-free public transportation, a switch to electric vehicles could help reduce harmful greenhouse gases in the meantime. But what is it like to use an electric car? Well, this July, I decided to take my electric 2017 Chevy Bolt for a 260-mile round-trip drive. We'll hear from some other e-car owners while you come along for the ride. I'm getting ready to drive to the Oneida Power, and that's like, I don't know, 130 miles away and um, my Bolt is fully charged and it's telling me it can go 311 miles. But if I'm driving highway speeds like 60, 70 miles now and I have air conditioning on, that's not really going to be 311 miles. So I plan to drive to Kokana and charge when I get to Kokana and give myself a bit more juice before I go all the way to Oneida. So it's 8 in the morning. I want to get there by, you know, 12 noon. On the ChargePoint website, I looked up different information about charging stations in that area, and it looked like Kakana had free ones. ChargePoint is one of the main charging station networks in the U.S. Madison Gas and Electric have 45 ChargePoint stations in Madison. Tesla, which manages charging stations just for their cars, has four charging stations. But I've never been to those charging stations, so that's a bit nerve-wracking. But anyway, I'm sure it'll be fine. While I drive to Kakana, let's check in with Lindsay Jenkins. She lives in Stevens Point with her family and owns a five-year-old Nissan Leaf that she uses for trips around
4: town. What does Lindsay think of her Leaf? Love it. Love it. Love it. Once you get one, you'll never go back. They're pretty easy and awesome. Number one, I love that I'm not buying gas.
7: Lindsay has solar panels on her house.
4: We have PV, so it's essentially straight-up sun-powered. That's the hugest. I really love that it's so maintenance-easy. Cleaning the car is my biggest concern, you know.
7: (laughs) Mileage range can drop by half in cold weather. My Bolt gets 300 miles in the summer, but that goes down to around 170 in the winter And the leaf?
4: Our summer charges are pretty consistently in the 120 range. And the winter, doing freeways, uh, we can get about 85.
7: The other big question is how long does it take to recharge the battery? While I plug my bolt into the outlet in the garage, Lindsay has a level 2 charger, which is much faster. If you live in an apartment building, it could be hard to charge at home. It's a six-hour
4: charge.
7: Meanwhile, my Bolt will charge about 2% an hour, meaning a flat battery will take two solid days to charge from the wall outlet. Longer mile range, longer charge time. Lindsay's family has a gas car for long-distance trips. MG&E will install a Level 2 charger at your home for a cost of, quote, about $20 a month, end quote, and the cost of the electricity. And how much does it cost Lindsay to charge her car?
4: We charge it maybe once a week. It's about $3.30 a charge. But what are the
7: downsides?
4: At this point, the infrastructure is, you know, moving forward. But, you know, there's that piece of, like, if you wanted to go further than what your range is, you know, it takes some scheming and finagling um, and time. You know, I mean, just comparatively, like, we bought this car five years ago, and from then until now, the amount of options that are available is just pretty phenomenal.
7: But help is coming. The Federal Highway Administration is planning to use money from the new infrastructure bill to develop fast charging stations every 50 miles along frequently used highways. Now let's check back and see how I'm doing with my car trip. I made it through Rosendale without getting a speeding ticket, and I'm approaching Kokana just past Appleton. I drove less than the speed limit and didn't use the air conditioning. Both things help conserve the battery, and I have 65% left on my battery. I got a bit lost, so I pulled off at a random exit. And right away is a Chevy dealership. But then I realized, maybe like the one in Madison, it has a charging station, and lo and behold, I'm now charging for free at this Chevy dealership on a Sunday morning. No one's around. I'm plugged in, I'm charging, and it looks like it's going to work. I spent just over an hour at Kakana while the car charged at a level 2 charger, and I added about 10% to my battery. Okay, it's 12 o'clock, and I've made it to the Oneida Powerwell. Wow. I'm so excited to be here. I am at 70% battery, and it says I have 270 miles left on my charge. And I'm 134 miles from Madison, so I'm hoping I should be able to get home on the rest of this charge. While I'm busy hanging out at the PowerWall, let's hear from Jake Fernald, who has had a long and passionate relationship with combustion engines, but now owns an electric car.
8: I got excited about combustion engines and fixing Volkswagens and motorcycles. The nice thing about a combustion engine is you can listen to it. Um, You can hear when it's not right. It makes you feel like you're kind of in touch with it, in tune with it. And, um, and then when it's your engine, you're like, oh yeah, it's, this is great today. It's working perfect. and all, Everything's in adjustment.
7: How can an electric car compete with that romanticism? Jake has a 2015 smart car, a two-seater built by Daimler.
8: I just love it. It is tiny. I think it's one of my favorite cars I've ever had. Why? I love the way it drives. Just, you know, you step on it and you have this acceleration... It just feels instantaneous. It just takes off and it just feels really nice. It's, It's lightning in a bottle and there's almost no vibration.
7: It's true, these cars are very quiet. Jake's smart car gets a range of up to 70 miles in the summer and as low as 27 miles on a cold winter day. It charges in about 12 hours. Of course, Jake couldn't resist tinkering with the car.
8: The one thing I have noticed with... The smart car is so short, and so it has uh, just a really good traction control system. And it's all designed so that if you start slipping sideways in the snow or the ice, the brakes hit different wheels so that they, they keep you in a straight line. Well, um, on YouTube, you can figure out how to turn off that system. So I did because I was really excited. I wanted to do some burnouts and maybe do some, you know, spin out in circles. I turned off the traction control. And instantly crashed. I mean, it was impossible to control. There's no, I couldn't feel the wheels. It, you know, you're modulating the pedal. There's no clutch. And it was a disaster. I didn't wreck the car. I just spun out and it went on the side of the road. I tried it about five times and crashed every time. So I, I just left the traction control back on because I do like the car. And, you know, crashing is not good for your car.
7: And the cost in
8: electricity? I've been looking at my bill. I I can't tell the difference in my electric car. Um, It doesn't seem to cost me anything. I mean, I know it does, but it isn't a noticeable difference on my electric bill.
7: On the subject of cost, the cheapest Tesla is about $48,000. The Chevy Bolt and Nissan Leaf are around $32,000 new. The very popular Ford F150 electric truck starts at around $40,000. Used, you can get the Leaf for about 12,000 and the Bolt for 21,000. Recently passed federal legislation provides a tax rebate for qualifying electric cars of up to 7,500 for new e-cars and up to 4,000 for used e-cars. Well, the powwow is over. Did I make it home safely? all right i'm home it's 5 30. it says i have 65 miles left so i made it in good good mileage and i've 25 of the battery is remaining so i made it home without any trouble without having to stop so that's really good while there may be other downsides to electric cars like the problem of mining lithium and cobalt for the battery fossil fuel extraction processing and consumption is the main contributor to the climate crisis. It did take longer to get to Oneida than in a gas car, and in the winter, I would definitely have had to stop and charge. But I did get there and back in relatively good time, and I traveled 260 miles without polluting the atmosphere. 90% of my family's driving is around town, a short work commute, or to nearby towns, which eliminates the worry about recharging. It definitely works for my family, Maybe it could work for you, too. For WORT Local News, this is Helena White.
0: Whether they're a welcome neighbor or a nuisance to your bird feeder, chipmunks are a common sight here in Dane County. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down everything you need to know about the eastern chipmunk.
10: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, I want to talk about our chipmunk species and the ground squirrels. I thought this week was very fitting to talk about them because holy cow, we have so many chipmunks at the Wildlife Center. Not just, you know, for rehabilitation, we do rehab a lot of chipmunks during the year, but we also have them naturally on our property. And this week when we were repairing some of our cages, which, you know, as time goes by, you have cages that have been built. And obviously we live in Wisconsin where there's so much you know complication with the weather there's water there's cleaning protocols there's you know spraying things down with disinfectants to make sure our cages stay really clean now that being said uh we do have a few of our older cages that you know it's you know with our over the years of form-fitting you know custom doors and things yes we have a few chipmunks that like to live around the property 30 acres of that will give you lots of chipmunks if there's good habitat so we have some that like to run around our uh area and again it's it's a large area, but we see them from time to time. And go figure, the reason that they are there is because we've got lots of birds that eat seeds in their diet. And they find that there's really great food that they could, you know, be able to easily access. And I think that's what a lot of people experience at their own homes. When they have a garage, maybe you store some bird seed in there. Maybe you put your seed feeders out. And do you see chipmunks that are hanging around at those seed feeders? You know, they can become what we call nuisance animals very casually in the wildlife rehabilitation field. And although we don't necessarily call them nuisance animals because we rehabilitate them and we do think that they're an important part of the environment, we do understand that you have to solve some problems if you have them in your own your backyards. We have to think about health and safety and damage, and we also have to think about all of those things ourselves as well. So it's it's a very difficult balance, but it's an interesting one. And I thought that there was just the absolute best, you know how-to or fact document that has been made. There's a whole series of these, but from the Wildlife uh, Damage Management uh, UW Extension. So uh, one of my actually uh, former professors, David Drake, runs that program at UW-Madison. And there are some really great readings in these publications, and they are available in PDF format if you go to Wildlife wildlifedamage.uwex.edu. So I thought I would share one about the chipmunks and ground squirrels, just some information that's in this, because um, whether you have access to the internet to be able to read this or not, I thought it would be fun to share at least a couple of things. So first, our chipmunks and our ground squirrels are very common here in our state, in Wisconsin, and they are actively burrowing. So if you've got, you know, the ground squirrel holes in your yard, that's probably them. They're more active during the summer months, and obviously that's their breeding period in the spring, and then babies are out in the summer, and they don't really go into any sort of deep hibernation. They do hibernate, but they might come out if it's a nice warm day and especially if there's food available. So we have our eastern chipmunks, which are the most common ones that we see at the Wildlife Center. And then we have our least chipmunk, which is mostly in the northern half of Wisconsin. They're a little bit smaller than our eastern chipmunks. We have the 13-line ground squirrel, which I always remember because of like, think of the 13 stars and stripes on our US flag, you know, from back in the day, I think of 13-line ground squirrel as having that alternating striping pattern. That's how you might be able to tell them apart from an eastern chipmunk who doesn't have that many stripes. It's actually two tan stripes and five black stripes for the eastern chipmunk. And then very rarely, we have the Franklin's ground squirrel, and that is actually in southwestern Wisconsin. We have not seen one at the Wildlife Center before, but it is a species of special concern. So if we ever see one of those, uh, you'll have to look up a picture of it, but it doesn't have that same striping pattern. It's mostly spotted. And yeah, very small population in our state. So mostly we're talking about our 13-line ground squirrels and our chipmunks, but their behavior is obviously to be out during the day, sometimes morning and afternoon. They tend to be pretty solitary, but you can see them in active groups especially, again, when they've got their big complex burrow systems and things. They generally come out of their holes in late March, uh, and then they are active all through the summer. And they usually reproduce only about once a year in the spring, as I mentioned, after hibernation. And they might have up to about seven babies in a group. Uh, And May and June is when we tend to see a lot of orphaned chipmunks come to the wildlife center. Um, And they can have as little as two, but generally they could try for a second litter if they feel like it in the fall. But we don't usually see too many of them. So lots of baby chipmunks, large groups of them. And most of the time they're eating nuts and berries and seeds, uh, but they will also eat insects and even eating a lot of protein content like eggs. They are known for going up trees and stealing eggs out of nests, which is really interesting. So bird nests and eating that. Uh, So they do need that type of protein. And then they are normally near woodlands and areas where there are lots of trees, but they tend to do really well in urban areas. So I'm sure you probably have seen some of them before in your backyards or digging and tunneling near the foundation of your house. So they are not protected here in our state. And this goes the same for 13-line ground squirrels, which I'm again mostly focusing on chipmunks today but uh you can manage the species and you know in the document it goes through a really great detailed option menu basically of like what kinds of ways to control for chipmunks if that is something that you're you know planning to do Uh, you do have to own the property to you know manage chipmunks whether you like them or you don't Um, we of course always suggest when callers call about these guys that you're going to use non-lethal methods that's going to be better for those animals and for the environment but state law does say that hey yes you if they're becoming a nuisance that's part of our our legal systems as well if you own the property and they're a nuisance you can remove them from the property generally we don't say that live trapping is a good idea it is one of them that is an option but if you did live trap your chipmunks wherever you release them you must have permission from whatever landowner you're releasing them to so just keeping that in mind if that's the option you choose also thinking about baits that people put out if you think about it if it was used as you know a bait for something else, like if they used a toxicant, which apparently zinc phosphide is a registered pesticide that's legal for 13-line ground squirrels in Wisconsin. But there shouldn't really be any other toxic baits that will be used for chipmunks, but people will definitely pick up the toxic uh, mouse or rodent baits and they will still eat that. So the problem with that is that now you might be putting other animals in danger, like foxes that would eat those chipmunks or raptors that might come around and eat them. So we always, always suggest non-lethal methods if possible. And there are definitely some great different types of you know suggestions in this document for non-lethal methods, which would normally be just excluding them, um, whether that's humanely or kind of more of a harassment technique, which is should still be nice to them. But there's uh, some options there using repellents or uh, habitat modification, you know, take away that food source and they probably won't be thriving as well. They'll probably move over to another neighbor's bird feeder or something. So, you know, those bird feeders, the seed, the garden hose, like other things that are in your lawn, that's probably providing them with good, safe habitat and good, food if you take some of that away then they're not going to like the habitat as much so that's just probably the best option that we usually suggest when people call and then otherwise just thinking about how chipmunks can also be beneficial for the environment and and kind of promoting the culture of you know living with those animals and tolerating them Uh, we understand that chipmunks definitely do a lot of damage and we do have to mitigate those those situations for us we're definitely going to do more of the exclusion techniques from our wildlife rehabilitation cages to say okay well we want them on the property but how do we get them so that they can't actually go into the enclosures so again it's using a lot of predator proofing techniques on our end which can definitely be relatable to people's houses and areas that you might not want them to get into so uh, certainly check out that document again by the UW uh, wildlife damage department, the extension. And uh, hopefully, if you haven't really thought about this before, you can get some tips and tricks for, you know, even the next time you, you move to a different location, a new house, or something that you, again, have to own the property. But it does offer some really great advice to kind of go through so that you know what your options are. So that has been our segment about Eastern chipmunks and their status here in Wisconsin as uh, wonderful critters, but also nuisance animals. So thank you for listening uh, for today's segment here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And if you need to give us a call for any other wildlife advice, rehabilitation or other, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks.
1: This week on Radio Astronomy, host Rourke Habegger takes us on a whistle-stop tour of the inside of a neutron star.
9: Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Rourke Habegger, and today we are going to take a tour through a neutron star. Neutron stars are the densest non-singular objects in the universe. Black holes are a space-time singularity, meaning they are infinitely dense from a certain perspective. Neutron stars are as close as matter can come to being a black hole without actually being a black hole. An often quoted number is that a tablespoon chunk of a neutron star would weigh 1 million tons. That implies a density of 60 billion grams per cubic centimeter. That literally just scratches the surface of a neutron star. The dense core is over a thousand times more dense. It is really difficult to imagine material like this. Water has a density of one gram per cubic centimeter, and we still have difficulty modeling the movement and dynamics of it. I'm referencing the unsolved Navier-Stokes equation, which describes the flow of liquids and gases like water in a lake. That equation, which we often solve approximately with computers, doesn't work for the dense material in a neutron star. Instead, the physics in a neutron star is more complicated. Let's travel through a neutron star, which weighs about 1.4 times as much as our sun. The neutron star would have approximately a radius of 10 kilometers. And it could have strong magnetic fields that beam out electromagnetic waves. If that's the case, we may be able to observe it as a radio pulsar, which are nothing but spinning, magnetized neutron stars. For this exploration inside of the neutron star, let's forget the spinning and the magnetism. We begin at the outer crust of the neutron star, where we scrape off a tablespoon weighing one million tons. This outer crust is made of a lattice of nuclei and a sea of electrons floating around in it. This phenomena is like what we see on metals here on Earth, except this lattice is much more densely packed. As we dig a couple hundred meters deeper, we see that the density has increased slightly, and the nuclei have started to experience beta-plus decay. During this process, a proton decays into a neutron, a neutrino, and a positron. Positrons are just electrons with positive charge. These positrons hit electrons in the sea, moving around the lattice, and recombine with them, emitting light that can heat the outer crust. This inner crust and the outer crust are called a crust because they have this lattice of nuclei. If that crust bends or snaps, there can be starquakes that release an explosion of energy from the neutron star. Once we've dug a kilometer into the neutron star, we find this lattice has broken apart. In fact, the nuclei in the lattice keep squeezing together until the neutrons start dripping out. This brings us to the state known as above-neutron drip, which separates the neutrons and protons. Now we have three C's mixing together, protons, neutrons, and electrons. This outer core of the neutron star provides an interesting world for us to explore. At this stage, things get more complex because the neutrons and protons aren't locked into place. The neutrons likely become a superfluid, where they lose all viscosity, and the protons may become superconducting. Superconductors here on Earth are really cold and have to be less than 100 degrees Kelvin. By comparison, the neutron star's outer core has a temperature of 10 million Kelvin. These high densities create the opportunity for some very weird physics. In fact, models of the outer core and inner core are an area of open debate. It is difficult to find distinguishable observables, for the insides of these tiny neutron stars. It's difficult to see inside the star and confirm one theory or another. So the mystery of superdense material beyond neutron drip is an active area of research, and some researchers suggest the neutrons and protons eventually, in the inner core, get squeezed until they decay into their constituent matter, quarks, Therefore, a so-called quark-gluon plasma is a common model of the inner core of a neutron star. Until we have a way to observationally confirm and or refute these models, we will be stuck exploring equations and computer simulations, attempting to understand the most finitely dense places in the universe. I hope you have a stellar week.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6.
1: I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and
4: wortfm.org.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish-language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night.